On October 22, 2015, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted an author's talk with Ari Berman, a journalist with The Nation, to discuss his new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. This was the inaugural seminar for the Race and American Politics seminar series, co-sponsored with the Wiener Center for Social Policy and the Hutchins Center at Harvard University. Joining Ari was Lani Guinier, the Bennett Bosky Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, and Leah wright Rigur, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and Chair of the Seminar Series. The discussion was moderated by Alex Kazar, Matthew W. Sterling, Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. My name is Alex Kazar, and uh, I, I, I teach here. and teach about democracies and do some writing about voting rights uh, as well. And I'm going to be, I'm really here to welcome you and to introduce uh, this session, to welcome you to the Ash Center. And to introduce you to the, the what this, this is the inaugural seminar of a new series, a new seminar series that exists at the Kennedy School sponsored by uh, the Ash Center and the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy. And the series, we're getting some good feedback here. The, uh, the series is, called, is the Race and American Politics Seminar Series. Uh, rather remarkably, this is a new undertaking uh, here. At, we, the Kennedy School has discovered that actually race is an issue. Um, and it's, this is a series which is, be, which is being put together um, and, and convened by, Leo, by my colleague, Leah Wright Rigur, who's an assistant professor of public policy. And it's a series that's, that will feature uh, academic, practitioner, and journalistic perspectives from across the nation about many of the most pressing political and social issues that involve race uh, in the United States. So you're, you are present at the beginning. You have the honor of, of being here, and we expect that this is actually a seminar series that will be going on for quite some time, or until the subject is no longer relevant or exhausted, <laughs> which I think means uh, for quite some time. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this as quickly as I can, because my, with the mandate that I was given was to introduce the event, introduce all of the speakers, and provide the historical background about 200 years of voting rights history prior to when Ari's book combined, and I was given nine minutes to do this. Uh, so forgive me if I dash through this. I I'm going to begin by very briefly introducing um, our three panelists. I'll introduce them all at once, which uh, I think will make things smoother. Um, I mean, oh, he, he was sitting immediately there, but they switched seats to, there, okay. Um, but the person who's providing the occasion of this event is Ari Berman. Ari is a journalist who writes uh, very frequently for The Nation and was an investigative journalism fellow at The Nation Institute. Uh, many of you have probably read uh, some of his pieces in addition to his frequent contributions to The Nation. He also has written for The New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, uh, etc., and pops up periodically on MSNBC and NBR. Um, he's, he, he's with us here today because of his new, relatively new book called Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights uh, in America. It's a book which has deservedly gotten a great deal of attention, um, and he will be talking to us for about uh, 20 minutes about, uh, about the book. 
Um, and I will not say anything more about the book since he can, he can do that himself. Then there will be a comment from my colleague at the law school, Lonnie Gournier. Uh, Lonnie is the Bennett Bosky Professor of Law at the Harvard Law School. She was the first woman of color ever appointed to a tenured position at the Harvard Law School. Uh, she taught at the University of Pennsylvania before coming to Harvard. Um, and she also she has a significant history actually as an attorney in the voting rights and legal rights world. She worked in the civil rights division at the US Department of Justice and then she headed the voting rights project at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which is a central institution in the defense of uh, voting rights in the United States in the 1980s. Lonnie is also a very well-known uh, scholar, uh, has written books and articles of great importance. To my mind, I think she has been among perhaps the most creative thinker about, uh, about about the, in the American context about trying to, th trying to think in new ways about the links between rights and institutional structures um, and has made numerous contributions, um, some of which have not been really welcomed by, uh, <laughs> by, 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 by some, of, some of your best friends who who were who were who at the time may even have been in high office um but the time but uh and i'm i'm very much looking forward to hearing what Lonnie has to say here and then the and then the the conversation will be moderated uh by Leah Wright Rigger who is the convener of this series um who has joined us about a year ago at the Kennedy School as an assistant professor uh, she taught before that at Wesleyan University. Uh, her research interests really include many things about American political and social history um, in, uh, primarily in the, 20, in the 20th century and modern African-American history. She's teaching courses here that I commend uh, to you about race, riot, and backlash in the United States and the civil rights movement and race and policy in modern America. And she is the author of a recently published book um, entitled The Loneliness of the Black Republican, which is a biography of Ben Carson. Uh, no, 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 it is not, it is not a biography of Ben Carson, although, although since Ben Carson burst into prominence, it seems to me, whenever I turn on the radio or occasionally on television, I see Leah talking about uh, um, Ben Carson. The, ac the actual subtitle of the book is Pragmatic Politics and the uh, and the pursuit of politics. Um, and it covers really four decades of American political and social history. Um, and, you know, and I can say to, uh, I, you know, to, to any of you, I, can, I commend you that, that even, even as someone who has studied American political history a, a great deal, I found many things in Leah's book that were just eye-opening and surprising to me and just uh, pieces of, of our recent history that um, I think most of us know nothing about. So that's, that's, that, is, that is our lineup. That's, uh, that is the dramatis personae. Um, and with that said, let me move on to the second part of my mandate, which was to say a few words about the, and, and to, for today's purposes, the prehistory 
of voting rights uh, in the United States. I mean, I think of it as the history of voting rights. But Ari's book really begins in the mid-1960s. Um, but that is not when the struggle to, to enhance voting rights began in the United States. And I just want to make a few uh, stage-setting comments here. The first is, despite our self-proclaimed and self-celebratory image as the world's oldest and most venerable democracy, the United States did not come anywhere close to achieving universal suffrage until arguably 1970, which is rather late uh, in, 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 the, in the game. And, and, and a lot of people would quibble with my saying, or not quibble, would quarrel with, with saying that you know, even in 1970. But it's only in 1970 that you could start making a plausible case that the United States had universal suffrage, which is, uh, after all, a necessary, not a sufficient, but a necessary prerequisite. Uh, for a democratic polity. During the almost two centuries before 1970, there were many, many different restrictions on the right to vote. The most well-known, of course, had to do with gender, which came to an end uh, in 1920, and race, uh, where I say, I'm sure everyone's room knows uh, African-Americans in the South, uh, with a few, <laughs> a few exceptions, were not permitted to vote uh, until the 1960s. But gender and race were not the only criteria. I mean, and here I'm bringing in my own, uh, you know, my own work. Class was also very important. There were a lot of class considerations in deciding who could um, and who could not vote. In the beginning of our history, as I'm sure most of you know, there were property requirements to vote, then there were tax-paying requirements. Um, even much later, uh, when, if you, if you're, to point to a fact, if you ask when were any kind of wealth or financial requirements for voting abolished in the United States, when would, when would any of you guess? The answer is 1965 by the Supreme Court. It's not until then. There were a number of states, and sometimes these were enforced and sometimes not, that, for example, had pauper requirements. Uh, saying that if you were a pauper, which meant you depended on public aid, you could not vote. Uh, there was, an, I'll give you an example of another, uh, there was an English, any, how many of you are from New York? Anybody from New York? Uh, do, do you know when New York got rid of its English language uh, literacy requirement to vote? 1965 also, actually it's late. Uh, which meant, among other things, that people from Puerto Rico who, who were born in United States territories were American citizens, um, were educated in U.S. schools, Spanish-speaking schools, and then moved to Puerto Rico. And we're not talking about a trivial number of people. We're talking about hundreds of thousands. Could not vote uh, until the mid-1960s. Um, several key things about some patterns uh, or, or some facts about the laws. The first is that suffrage law in the United States at the outset and continuing still in many ways is state law, uh, okay? Um, you may or may not realize this, but there is no right to vote in the U.S. Constitution, okay? There, it, it, it just, it isn't there. I've looked for it. Um, I actually was once part of a film where the, the device of it was that um, I was trying to explain to Mo Rocca um, where he, he was coming to me saying, where can I find the right to vote? And I had to keep saying, but, you know, but Mo, the, you, you, you can't find it. Um, but it's all a matter of state law. The first federal interventions uh, don't really come until Reconstruction. 
And then the second wave of federal interventions uh, really occurs only during the second reconstruction or after World War II, um, and then predominantly in the 1960s. And that, this is a legacy that is still with us in terms of if you're trying to understand what's going on today, the fact that a lot of this law is state law, now circumscribed by federal requirements, um, is true. Second pattern, which may or may not be relevant to Ari's story, but it's worth noting, is that the pressure to democratize expansions of the right to vote in the United States have almost invariably occurred during or just after wartime. Okay, it's a very powerful pattern. Uh, talk more about it if anyone wants, but this is not really, uh, it's not my stuff that we're here to talk about. And third, that the long history of voting rights uh, in the United States is not a history of ongoing forward progress. Okay, the long history of voting rights, which is something I, I've written about a lot, is of moments of advance followed by periods of retreat and retrenchment, of, of either stasis or actual rollbacks. Part of the story about voting rights in the United States is that there are people who have had, in many different periods, many different places, who have had the right to vote and lost it. Okay, it was taken away from them. Uh, so the, story, the, th the thought that we're talking about an inexorable democratic thrust forward uh, is factually wrong and in many senses politically um, misleading. I mean, again, we know, you know, the, the, the most well-known example of this had to do with African Americans in the late 19th century. The 15th Amendment is passed um, saying that there'll be no discrimination based on uh, race, color, or previous condition of servitude, and that was enforced for about an hour. Um, and, and, and then uh, by the late 19th century, it basically did, did not apply in the South. But that's, that's not the only such example. I'm to give a, a local example uh, convicted felons in Massachusetts could vote until 2001, okay, and then they had the right to vote uh, taken away. So there, and there are a lot of instances um, like this. In the 1960s and 1970s, the period where Ari's book begins, was a time of immense adva advances in voting rights. It really is, in some sense, in political terms, a revolutionary period uh, for voting rights. Um, and it appeared, I think, from the vantage point of many people looking at this in 1970 or 1975, it appeared that the struggle for universal suffrage and universal voting rights in the United States had come to an end, uh, that the story finally um, had reached some end point in universal suffrage. But as the history, the long history would have predicted, it turned out not to be not so true. Um, history did not stop. At, the, um, at that point. And there have been since then a, a, a long series of very important events that have unfolded and that is the story that Ari Berman has told so well in this book and is going to talk about today. So with that, I turn it over to you, Ari. And do I, am I supposed to give you, no, you're already mic'd, okay. I'm Thank you to the Ash Center for having me and all the various related Harvard institutions that have co-sponsored this. <laughs> uh, thank you to Leah for hosting this. Congrats on the seminar, very exciting. Uh, good thing race is no longer an issue in this country, so you don't have anything to talk about. Um, and it's a real honor to be here with uh, Alex and, and Lonnie, two people that I've learned uh, so much about, and I don't think it's hyperbole to say, probably one of the greatest historians and probably one of the greatest lawyers of our time um, sitting 
to my left. So it's really, really an honor. Uh, and it's kind of humbling to think that I talk and then Lonnie talks after me. I mean, that's crazy. I should be introducing you, Lonnie. Um, but, but, in any, but in any case, um, I, I want to start. My book, Give Us the Ballot, which Leah has a copy of uh, over there, uh, begins in 1965, but I actually don't want to begin in 1965. I want to begin in 2011 and then move back to 1965. Most people who write histories, they start at the beginning and then they move forward. And I did the opposite. I started basically in the present and moved backwards. And the reason I did that was because I first really became aware uh, of the voting rights issue in early 2011. And what happened in early 2011 was that all of these state legislatures following the 2010 election either became uh, flipped from blue to red, so from Democratic to Republican, or they became a lot more Republican. This was the Tea Party wave election, uh, remember. And what happened is when these legislatures convened, they began introducing all of this new legislation very rapidly to make it harder for certain people to vote. And these were things like shutting down voter registration drives or requiring new qualifications to be able to register to vote, cutting back on early voting, requiring strict forms of government-issued ID to cast a ballot that you never needed before in any previous election, purging the voting rolls, disenfranchising ex-felons. And this was happening on a very dramatic scale. There were 180 new voting restrictions introduced in 41 states from 2011 to 2012. And half of the states in the country passed new laws making it harder to vote. And this wasn't just happening in the South. It wasn't just happening in places like Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia, which historically have had the biggest fights over uh, voting rights. It was occurring in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Iowa, which did not have the same history when it came to voting discrimination. And this seemed to me to be a clear attempt to create an electorate that was older, whiter, and more conservative, like the 2010 electorate had been, as opposed to younger, more diverse, and more progressive, uh, like the 2008 electorate had been. And it seemed like a direct shot at the coalition that had elected the first black president. So I found these new laws to be very alarming, but no one was really writing about them. So I wrote really the first national story about this in Rolling Stone magazine uh, with the rather provocative title of the GOP war on voting. Uh, I guess you got to get people who normally read about Katy Perry to read about politics somehow. And this was, <laughs> this was the way to do it. Uh, but, but basically, I thought I would write one story about voting rights and just move on to covering American politics broadly, but what happened was new laws were passed, new restrictions were passed, uh, then there was uh, many legal challenges, uh, and then uh, there were major organizing efforts around this. And so this was an issue that I ended up covering all throughout the 2012 election. I, and I kind of stumbled into becoming an expert uh, on, on voting rights. And then after the election, the Supreme Court heard a challenge to the Voting Rights Act and particularly to the part of the Voting Rights Act that said that those states with the longest histories of voting discrimination have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. And it was at that point in time that I became very, very interested in the history of the Voting Rights Act. And I began asking a lot of people, uh, what did the Voting Rights Act do? Why was it so important? What was its impact? And why is it being challenged today? And I was really surprised that no one had written a comprehensive narrative account of the Voting Rights Act. There had been amazing books written about uh, voting rights. Alex's book is one of the most comprehensive books ever written about anything, um, but particularly um, about, 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 about voting rights. Um, but but what, I, what I was so interested in was, was starting 
where so many of the histories of the civil rights movement end, which is in 1965. Because in a lot of ways, when we study civil rights in this country, we're told this narrative that uh, there were all these people that were disenfranchised in the South. And then there was this incredible civil rights movement that really culminated with this triumphant march from Selma to Montgomery following the atrocities of Bloody Sunday detailed in, in the film Selma. But history tends to stop in 1965 with that march from Selma to Montgomery and the passage of the Voting Rights Act, or it tends to end in 1968 with the death of Martin Luther King. And I knew that the voting rights struggle didn't end in 1965. I knew that the civil rights movement didn't die in 1968, that there were five decades later that we needed to tell, and we needed to connect that history in those five decades with the ongoing struggles that occur today that I had written about since 2011. So that was really the focus of my book. And I, I just want to start in terms of the substance by talking about what the Voting Rights Act did as the basis, because some people know and then some people don't know. And so uh, the, the Voting Rights Act was really not just the crowning achievement of the Civil Rights Movement, but really one of the most effective pieces of legislation ever passed uh, by the Congress and ever implemented uh, by the federal government in any sort of area. And the first thing the Voting Rights Act did was it abolished things like literacy tests in those places where they had been used to historically disenfranchise black voters. And so those kind of things were outlawed virtually overnight by the legislation. Then within days of the law passing, federal officials were sent to the South to register voters, primarily black voters, in places like Sel Selma, Alabama, where prior to the Voting Rights Act, only 2% of African Americans were registered to vote. And this was a massive undertaking by the federal government and something that they did very effectively and efficiently. Hundreds and then thousands of people were registered within days of the Voting Rights Act passing. Then federal officials stayed in, in the South for more than one hour. Uh, they, they stayed to make sure that elections were not stolen, that you would be able to conduct free and fair elections in places like Selma. And then they said, as I mentioned earlier, and this was challenged before uh, the Supreme Court, that those states with the longest histories of voting discrimination had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. And this was done because the people that passed the Voting Rights Act were very cognizant of the history of this country, particularly in Reconstruction, which is we pass the 15th Amendment in 1870 that says very clearly, the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude for a brief 10-year period, those words really mean something. There are black senators and governors elected from states like Louisiana and Mississippi, something that's never occurred in American history uh, since then. But what happens is federal troops leave the South after, after the disputed election of 1876. We begin to see things like literacy tests, poll taxes, property requirements, grandfather clauses, backed up by a wide-scale system of violence, fraud, economic and social retribution, all of which essentially eliminates an entire segment of the population overnight. And so the, the people that passed the Voting Rights Act wanted to make sure that the second Reconstruction, which I argue began in 1965, didn't suffer the same fate as the first Reconstruction, which is all these amazing things happen, then we lose the political will to enforce it, uh, and we go back to Jim Crow. And so that's why the Voting Rights Act was such a powerful piece of legislation, not just in 1965, but in the decades after. But as Alex mentioned, while the Voting Rights Act was supposed to end the debate over voting rights, that never happened. Uh, and that never happened because opponents of the Voting Rights Act kept figuring out new ways to challenge it and new arguments to make against it. The first thing that the states who opposed the Voting Rights Act did is they made the traditional states' rights argument, the same argument they had made forever, which was that this law was unconstitutional and the federal government didn't have the power to tell states how to set their voting qualifications. And 
The Supreme Court very quickly said that the law was constitutional. There was an eight to one decision called South Carolina versus Katzenbach that upheld the constitutionality of the VRA in 1966. Okay, so it looks like once again, this is settled. The law has been upheld as constitutional, just like the healthcare decision, let's, let's move on. Um, that, again, that didn't happen. What occurred right after that is that states like Mississippi began changing their election laws to make it harder for newly registered black voters to be able to run for office, to be able to elect candidates of their choice, to be able to have real representation. And they began doing things like either gerrymandering uh, political lines in such a way that you just couldn't have a black candidate elected, or they would switch so that all of their elections were on a citywide or a countywide basis. So if you lived in a place like Jackson, Mississippi, which was 60% white and 40% black, the 60% white majority could elect every single candidate. So even after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, there was no black representation in places like Mississippi because of this. Then that was challenged before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court again said that this kind of thing, these new kind of voting changes were also unconstitutional. That the Voting Rights Act wasn't just about the right to vote in terms of abolishing things like literacy tests, it was about the power of the vote. And the power of the vote meant that you didn't just have the right to vote, but you had to the power to elect candidates of your choice. You had the right to real representation as well. And so again, it seemed like, and this decision was in 1969, again, it seemed like the debate over the Voting Rights Act was settled. But then there was a new argument made against the Voting Rights Act, which is not just the Congress, but all levels of government began to integrate for the first time in the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, and we began to see black candidates elected all across the country, Hispanic candidates, Asian American candidates elected all across the country. And the new argument made against the Voting Rights Act was that if you drew a district that allowed an African American or a Hispanic or an Asian American to be elected, that that was a form of affirmative action in the electoral process, that it would lead to things like quotas and proportional representation. This was an argument made vociferously in the 1980s by a young Harvard Law graduate by the name of John Roberts. Uh, now, of course, uh, the, the, Chief Justice of the one, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and I'm, I'm sure one of the, the most noted, although seemingly unfortunate, Harvard alums. Uh, and, and basically, a whole generation of young conservatives in the 1980s was making this argument uh, that the Voting Rights Act had turned into a form of affirmative action in the electoral sphere, and that however well-intentioned, the Voting Rights Act had taken on a power uh, beyond uh, what it was originally intended to do. Uh, and so that was, an, that was another debate that, that took place and, and another reaction against voting rights. And, and I think that argument was made a lot, but what we began to see is that the voting rights that kept being strengthened, and not only that, uh, there, there was a further democratization, a further integration uh, of the political process. And then we began to hear this doesn't relate directly to the Voting Rights Act, but just relates more broadly to voting rights in general, which is we began to hear a lot more about voter fraud. And this argument about voter fraud, as Alex's book will tell you, is, is very old. Um, it's not a new argument, um, but it's something that really comes into the public narrative a lot right around the 2000 election in Florida. And I just want to talk about this um, briefly because what happened in 2000 was that there was a massive voter purge in the run-up to the 2000 election in Florida. And Florida was one of those states where ex-felons could not vote. It was a ban that dated back to 1868. Many states passed these kind of bans after the Civil War. Most of them had repealed them, but Florida, being the state of high distinction that it is, had not. Uh, and what, what happened was that um, the state claimed that tens of thousands of felons were illegally on the voting rolls and needed to be purged. But there was two problems with this voter purge in the run-up to the 2000 election. 
The first was that the list was inaccurate, that people were purged as felons even if their middle names, their last names, their, their race, their sex didn't perfectly match. The second problem was that the list was discriminatory, that African Americans made up 11% of the electorate in Florida, but 44% of those on the purge list. So what happened on election day 2000 is people showed up in Florida and they were wrongly told that they were felons, they were prevented from voting, and this were disproportionately African-American voters that this happened to. This is so significant because remember, this election was decided by 537 votes. What happened after the 2000 election, this was kind of lost in the fog of hanging chads and butterfly ballots and elderly Jews accidentally voting for Pat Buchanan. This is all this kind of stuff that got to the headlines, but what happened after the election is the NAACP sued Florida. And as a result of that settlement, the state admitted that 12,000 people were wrongly labeled as felons and potentially prevented from voting. And that was 22 times George W. Bush's margin of victory in the state. And I think elements of the Republican Party took the unfortunate lesson from Florida in 2000 that small manipulations in the political process could make a big difference in close races, could in fact decide close races. And that talking about voter fraud, because remember this is the whole reason we had the voter purge in the first place, was because the state claimed that felons were illegally voting. That talking about voter fraud was the way to then build support for new voting restrictions. And so what we see is that this effort intensifies after George W. Bush is uh, installed as president, but it really ratchets up following the election of Barack Obama. And I think voter fraud becomes a useful and manufactured way to build public support for making it harder for certain people to participate in the political process. And if you look at the 2008 electorate, there were 5 million new voters. And of those 5 million new voters in 2008, 2 million were black, 2 million were Hispanic, and 600,000 of them were Asian. And so this was the beginning of a new American electorate. A lot of people called it the coalition of the ascendant. And many people were arguing that demography was destiny and that the opposition party was going to have to reach out to these new constituencies with new policies, with new messages to get this new coalition on board. What we did not see happening is that instead of reaching out to these new voters, there would instead be an attempt to make it harder for them to participate in the political process in both subtle ways, requiring IDs that blacks, Hispanics, lower income voters did not have, cutting back on early voting, which people of color use more frequently than whites, eliminating or shutting down voter registration drives with young people and, and people of color uh, used more frequently, or sometimes explicitly. The Texas voter ID law, for example, allowed you to vote with a handgun permit, but not with a state university issued ID. Uh, so sometimes people weren't even all that uh, subtle about this. And I guess this is a good time to remind people, if you have not already turned your cell phone off, uh, please, please do so. And so we saw a wave of these new voting restrictions uh, throughout the, the 2012 election. And then what happened was the Supreme Court gutted this key part of the Voting Rights Act and said that those states with, with a long history of voting discrimination no longer had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. They didn't strike down the requirement itself, they struck down the formula for which these states were covered. And Chief Justice John Roberts basically argued that although the country had changed since 1965, that the Voting Rights Act had not sufficiently modernized. Uh, and so that was a really big blow to voting rights. And, and, and Alex talked about how the path of voting rights has not been one of 
forward progress. And indeed, in this case, the very progress we had made was using an excuse to roll back the progress. So Roberts, in his opinion, pointed not just to the election of President Obama, but the election of black mayors in places like Selma, Alabama, and Philadelphia, Mississippi, as a reason why these parts of the Voting Rights Act were no longer necessary. So instead of viewing American history on a trajectory where when good things happen in voting rights, that's a reason to celebrate and expand voting rights. Instead, the narrative became, well, if we've made so much progress, we don't really need this part of the law anymore. And, and so a few things have happened as a result of, of this Shelby County decision. The first thing is that laws that were blocked as discriminatory under the Voting Rights Act, like Texas's voter ID law, were allowed to go into effect. The second thing was that states passed new and tougher voting restrictions following the decision. A month after the Shelby County decision, North Carolina essentially curtailed or repealed every voting reform in that state that made it easier to vote. They cut back on early voting. They eliminated same-day voter registration. They required strict voter ID. They eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, which was taught in high school civics classes. They even eliminated Citizens Awareness Month, which the state ran to encourage people to register to vote. So, so they threw everything they could into one bill. Uh, and Whereas it previously would have been blocked under the Voting Rights Act, now it was allowed to go into effect. The last thing that has happened uh, most recently is that you may have followed in the news, the state of Alabama passed a strict voter ID law in 2011. It was allowed to go into effect after the 2013 Shelby County decision. Alabama just closed 31 DMVs in the state. They were in a budget crisis. They said that it had nothing to do with voting. They said it just makes it harder to drive. The problem is that in Alabama, because of the voter ID law, driving and voting are intertwined because now you need a form of government issued ID to cast a ballot and the places where you're most likely to get it are at the, are at the DMVs. And so what's so disturbing about this is that DMV offices have been closed in majority black counties all across the state. Uh, in the very counties surrounding Selma, Alabama, where people died fighting for voting rights. People like Jimmy Lee Jackson and Viola Luzo and Jonathan Daniels, who I write about in my book. And, and, and so this is the kind of thing that I think, and, and Lonnie can elaborate on this, but this is the kind of thing that would have been challenged under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that Alabama would have either had to have gotten approval for this, because it wasn't directly relating to voting, but it clearly had a big impact on, on the electorate, or they would have been sued. Uh, instead, everyone's just kind of waiting to see what the civil rights groups, what the federal government is going to do. Uh, meanwhile, all of these DMVs are closed. The solution that's been floated is that they'll be open for one day a month. And it was interesting to hear that because in the days before the passage of the, civil, the Voting Rights Act, voter registration offices, county registrar's office, were only open one day a month. So that was another way that access to the ballot uh, was restricted. So I, I think I'll end there because I want to leave everyone else enough time. I do want to talk about some solutions here because I don't just want to depress everyone. Um, we're in a political moment where uh, I think in many ways the right to vote is under siege. At the same time, there are some good ideas in terms of how to expand voting rights. And I think uh, one of the, the I, I don't want to say a good consequence, but one of the consequences of the attack on voting rights is that people are appreciating the Voting Rights Act all over again. And they're realizing this fight isn't over. It's, and it's an opportunity to not only talk about the power of the vote, but to lay out an alternative vision, which Lonnie has done for many years, about how to get more people to participate in the political process. So thank you.